It's midnight, the podcasting hour. Frightful back again. Last month I met some old, very old, friends for dinner before the holidays. We exchanged stories, and one of them shared a doozy with me. Get comfy, it's a long one. Jeremy Lynch sat on the couch watching cartoons, arms wrapped around the one thing he loved more than anything else in the world, a stuffed bear his gammy rose had given him when he was a newborn. Six years had passed since then, and not a day went by that Jeremy didn't hug his little bear, his little Billy Bear. He hugged it, he squeezed it, he carried it with him from place to place. Of course he slept with it. At mealtimes, he brought a separate chair to the table just for his stuffed animal. Billy Bear made everything better. Or at least he had... Lately, Jeremy's attachment to the bear had caused some problems. Jeremy's father didn't understand what Billy Bear meant to him. It started one day when he told Jeremy to leave the bear in his room during dinner, that they didn't need to set out a special chair just for Billy. Jeremy pouted until his father relented, saying, "'Jesus, whatever. Just don't talk to the damn thing any more. You're too old for this.' A week later, his father demanded the same thing, keep Billy from the table. Jeremy pouted again, but his father shouted for him to shut up and to grow up. His father had never shouted that loudly before. It cut Jeremy's vocal cords, and all he could do was sit in silence. His mother, though, it was as though the pitch of Tom Lynch's voice at that moment shook her like an earthquake tremor, and something inside her broke a little. She ran to Jeremy, smoothed his hair, whispered everything was fine, that he was a sweet boy, everything was fine. But her voice, her voice rattled like a china set in the quake's aftershock. They compromised. Billy Bear couldn't be in the kitchen during meals. He had to stay on the living room couch where Jeremy could see him. This is better, Tom Lynch said. This is a normal family dinner. But he looked at his son and realized Jeremy hadn't heard a word, he said. Jeremy was looking across the room at his bear, mouthing words to it. His father burst from the table, slamming his hands down, pushing himself up with such force that his chair overturned. He barked some guttural sound Jeremy didn't recognize and walked out the back door. His mother followed her husband out into the backyard. Jeremy heard them shouting, heard his father threaten to take Billy Bear away forever. His mom tried to explain what it meant to Jeremy and reminded his father that it was a gift from her mother, Gammy Rose. Jeremy knew that wasn't the right thing to say. His father hated Gammy Rose. He heard his father call her a goddamn witch when his mom wasn't around. The shouting stopped abruptly with the slam of a car door. Jeremy heard the engine rev and his father peel out into the street and drive away. When his mother came back inside, Jeremy was no longer at the kitchen table. He was on the couch, crying, clutching Billy Bear to his chest. Things got worse after that. 
The family was going to the dunes to celebrate the 4th of July. They packed up the car and left the house at dawn. Jeremy was still asleep. When he woke up in the back seat, he reflexively felt around for Billy Bear. It wasn't there. He checked the gap between the seats, but Billy wasn't there. He started breathing heavily. His chest started pounding. His mom looked over her shoulder and asked what was wrong. Jeremy took his seatbelt off and started to climb into the back of the wagon to see if Billy got packed with the rest of their stuff. His father shouted for Jeremy to put his seatbelt back on. Only he used a word Jeremy wasn't supposed to hear and was never supposed to say. His parents started shouting at him, then at each other. His mother told her husband to pull the car over. His father refused, actually put more weight on the gas pedal. Jeremy reached up to the front seat and grabbed his mother's arm. Where was Billy Bear? Where was Billy Bear? He had to know. I'm sorry, sweetie, his mother said, and tears began to run down her cheeks, tears to match Jeremy's own. We must have left him at home. Forget the stupid bear, his father barked. You're too old for stuffed animals. Get back in your seat, Jeremy, right now. A sound rose from the back seat of the car, a high-pitched whine, unimaginably painful. Jeremy didn't even realize he was the one making the sound until his mother grabbed both sides of his face and begged him to stop screaming. Suddenly, Jeremy was flung to the side out of his mother's grasp as his father yanked the wheel and pulled the car over to the side of the road. He threw the car into park and then shifted his mask to reach into the back seat. Jeremy had never noticed how huge his father's hands were until that moment when one hand grabbed his shirt, balled the fabric into a wad in his fist, and pulled him forward. Jeremy felt weightless as his body was almost yanked into the gap between his parents' seats. Then his father's other hand came down on the side of his head. For a second, Jeremy thought the force of his father's fist would knock his head all the way around so he could see behind him. Then it was like his senses started to shut off, one by one. First was his hearing. His parents' voices went quiet like the volume was turned down, replaced by the thunderous rumbling of a train running over Jeremy's head. Then the lights started popping in front of his eyes. He felt weightless again, just for a second, and then realized his father had released his grip and shoved him back. Jeremy bounced off the back seat and crumpled to the floor behind his mother's seat. He didn't hear the passenger side door open, but suddenly she was there, on top of him, digging him out of the wedge between seats. She sat him in her lap and held him close. The fireworks show in front of his eyes had stopped and Jeremy could see plainly again. But there was nothing in this car at that moment that he wanted to look at, so he kept them shut tight. The rumbling train sound had died down, and now he could hear his mother's voice, soothing him, telling him it was going to be okay. Her voice sounded like rattling China again. They never made it to the dunes that 4th of July. Tom Lynch drove the car back home, kicked Jeremy and his mother out of the car, and drove off for hours. Things did not get better after that. Talk between Jeremy's parents had only two modes, whispers and shouts. His father never punched him again like he did in the car, but he was quick to shove Jeremy out of his way if they passed each other in the house. Things weren't any easier for Jeremy at school, where the other kids didn't understand Billy Bear any better than his father did. Jeremy snuck Billy Bear out of the house each morning in his backpack and then carried him at school. The teachers didn't approve of it. They called his mom, but she didn't forbid it. That day at school, another boy ripped Billy Bear out of Jeremy's hands and ran around the classroom with it, trying to keep it away from Jeremy. 
Jeremy knew his father would find out what happened after that, so for now he just wanted to sit on the couch and watch his cartoons with Billy. Tom Lynch came home earlier than Jeremy expected. He barged in, spotted Jeremy on the couch with his bear, and hissed something between his teeth. Jeremy saw little flecks of spittle fly out of his father's mouth. Then his father marched down the hall to his bedroom, shouting for Jeremy's mom. They screamed at each other. "'Now I gotta hear about this crap at work?' his father said. "'Dave Lawson tells me school called him, said his son's got a bloody nose, said my son attacked him?' They were teasing Jeremy, his mother said, over the goddamn bear. They took his bear away, which is what you should have done years ago. Now he's fighting kids over it. Our son's a retard for that stupid stuffed bear. Don't, Jeremy's mom shouted, making a fist. Don't say that word. She pounded on her husband's chest. If he felt anything of the punch, Tom Lynch gave no indication. But the act itself brought blood to his eyes. He put one meaty hand over his wife's face and shoved her across the room. She ricocheted off a bookshelf and fell to her knees. Then Jeremy's father turned his attention back on him and the bear. His steps were heavy thunderclaps coming down the hall. Jeremy wanted to run, but he couldn't make his legs move. He rolled over, flattening Billy Bear between his body and the couch cushions. "'Give it to me,' his father hissed right over him. Jeremy could feel the spit on his neck. Give it to me right now or I'll kill you. The threat was real. Jeremy believed him entirely. Maybe that fear paralyzed him, but he didn't move. He shut his eyes and braced for his father to hit him. But the man was too big and too strong for that. He grabbed Jeremy around the throat, his big sausage fingers almost touching his thumb on the other side. He pulled Jeremy up, only to Jeremy it felt like the rest of the world was being ripped away from him. The couch, the ground below gravity, and most especially Billy Bear lying defenseless on the couch. Jeremy spun out of his father's grip but tripped over the coffee table and landed hard on his chest. The air rushed from his lungs, sending a cascade of dust bunnies into the air in front of him. By the time he rolled over onto his back and sat up, it was too late. His father held Billy Bear's head in one hand and his body in the other, then pulled. It took almost no effort for the man. In one instant, the bear became two separate pieces. Three, if you count the dab of fuzz that fell to the floor like a snowflake. Gone. That's what Billy Bear was now. Not broken. Not tarnished. Not dead. Just gone. Jeremy's father was smiling. A shudder of pleasure ran through him. Go ahead, he told his son. Cry about it. Jeremy could not cry. He couldn't think. It was all he could do just to breathe. I said cry, his father shouted, then brought his hands together to change his grip. He wrapped three of his fingers around one of Billy's arms and ripped that off, too. The violence of the act and the ferocious glee in his father's face shook Jeremy out of his stupor. Still, he could not cry. Billy Bear was gone. His father had taken him away. Jeremy just wanted to go away, too. He climbed to his feet and went down the hall toward his room. Hey, his father shouted. Jeremy stopped at his door. He didn't want to look back. He could barely see into his parents' room, his mother's feet on the bed. She was curled up. Jeremy looked back at his father. The man had each of Billy Bear's legs in his mitts. He yanked, splitting the bear down the middle, spilling tufts of white fuzz onto the ground. And then his father snorted. 
Jeremy slammed his door shut, got down on his knees beside his bed, and prayed. He prayed to have Billy Bear back. He prayed to have his father punished. To whom or to what exactly Jeremy prayed is unknown. What is known is that something heard his prayers. Something was listening. That night Tom Lynch fell asleep on the reclining chair in the family room. Neither his wife or son came out of their rooms after his explosion. He took the bits of stuffed animal outside and shoved them in the trash can. Then he came back inside, dumped half a jar of processed nacho cheese into a bowl, nuked it in the microwave, and ate it with tortilla chips on his favorite chair while watching sports highlights. He chased it all with a case of Bud Light. After thirteen beers, he passed out. Something woke him after midnight. A sound. He climbed out of his chair, dumping nacho crumbs and crushing beer cans under his feet as he took a minute to reorient himself. He remembered why he fell asleep on the chair and what had woken him up. What had caused that sound that sounded like, like a clang of metal on metal? Like the lid of the trash cans? The trash cans. That goddamn stuffed bear. He glanced down the hallway. Both the doors to his son's room and his own bedroom were closed. Whatever. One of them had snuck past him, snuck out to the trash cans to pick up the pieces of that stuffed animal. Tom marched to the back door and kicked it open, hoping to scare the life out of whichever member of his house that was going behind his back now. He walked down the steps to the side of the house toward the cans. He didn't see his wife or Jeremy. There was no one around, but one of the cans was knocked over. The lid had rolled a few feet away. Tom looked around again. It was too dark to see much of anything besides a faint sheen of the metal trash can. No wife, no Jeremy. Either they were hiding in the dark, or, or they hadn't knocked over the trash. Maybe it was just a raccoon. Tom leaned over to pick up the trash can. As he gripped the edge to right it, he pulled his hand away in disgust. He'd touched something wet inside the can. Not just wet, but slimy. Slimy and yet... He looked at his fingers. Damn, it was dark, but still he could see his fingertips stained black by some kind of liquid that smelled like... And what was that other feeling? Soft, like... like fuzz. Then a sound. A low rumbling. No, not rumbling. Every hair on Tom Lynch's back stuck up. The sound was a growl. A deep, hungry growl. He spun around, and something in the darkness moved. He caught a glance of it coming down from above. It slammed the side of his head, knocking Tom onto his back. Pain exploded in his face. The sound of the growl was replaced by the thrumming engine of a speeding train racing over his skull. Water trickled down his face, over his jaw, down his neck. No, Jesus, it wasn't water. It was... He reached up to the side of his head where the thing had struck him. The whole side of his face was agony, and his ear hung from his scalp by a stringy patch of hair and flesh. Dear God, it attacked him. It mauled his face. His face was coming off. Dear God! Tom tried to back away, but he couldn't see anything. The whole world was black, but he knew his back was facing the door to the house, so he tried to crab walk back that way. He got maybe two steps before his attacker came back, slamming his chest with impossible force. Tom felt, in fact, he was sure he heard his ribs snap as the thing stepped on his chest. His lungs couldn't take in air. He was going to die. This thing was going to kill him. Helplessly, pitifully, he flailed. His arms reached out to push his attacker away, and when they touched fur, 
when his fists clenched around big clumps of shaggy fur. That's when Tom tried to scream. But his ribs were broken and his lungs were punctured. He couldn't make a sound. All he could do was hope it ended soon. And that's when its jaws clamped down on his throat. Jeremy woke to a knock at his door. It was morning. He didn't remember when he fell asleep. But now that he was awake, he reached out for Billy. Then it came back to him, what his father had done, how Jeremy had cried himself to sleep. He didn't want to go outside ever again, but the knock at his door repeated. Then his mother's voice, Jeremy, there's someone here to see you. He looked at the door. His mother couldn't possibly mean Billy had come back, could she? Why had she said it? Why had she said those exact words that filled him with hope he knew would only let him down? Unable to resist, Jeremy went to his door and opened it just a crack. His mother was on the other side, smiling. Her face looked brighter than Jeremy could ever remember. "'Someone's here to see you,' she repeated, and nudged the door open a little so Jeremy could see beyond her. There, in the living room, sitting on the couch, was Gammy Rose, and sitting in her lap, good as new, Billy Bear. Jeremy rushed past his mother and flung himself onto the couch. He took the bear in his hands and buried himself in Gammy Rose's hug. Her funny crystal necklaces clattered against his cheek as she rocked him side to side. She was amazing, a literal lifesaver. She had given Jeremy Billy Bear the first time, and now, somehow, she had brought him back. He never understood why his father called her a witch, but right now he couldn't care less. He squeezed Billy tighter than ever, and Gammy Rose chuckled. The morning sun shining through the windows sparkled in her eyes. Hello and welcome to Midnight, the podcasting hour. I'm Ryan Daly, and this time we're returning to the random horror selections with a story called No Strings Attached that was originally published in House of Mystery, issue 191. Joining me on this episode is a longtime friend of the Fire and Water Network and one of the few members of this community that I have actually met in person. And yet, this is our first time recording a podcast together. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the dastardly creative Luke Dobb to the show. Hello, Luke. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> I was not Hey, expecting... how's it going? Are you mocking my voice? Oh, no, no, no. No, by no means. No, that was uh, that was my ghoulish okay. hello. <laughs> Preparing us for the horror that awaits. Fantastic. Oh, it's great to have you on the show. When we discussed that you were coming on the podcast, there were a few stories that came to mind, but this one, No Strings Attached, was right at the top of the list. I thought it would be right up your alley. What did you think? I couldn't have agreed more. <laughs> For multiple reasons, but yes, it, this was a perfect choice for me. Yeah, and we'll get into those reasons in a little while, but before we talk about the story, though, let's get into your history with the horror genre. What is your experience with horror comics, horror movies, etc.? My experience with horror is relatively recent because I really hated anything too scary when I was a kid. I was pretty sheltered, so I didn't, you know, I didn't really get into that kind of stuff. 
So for me, it's it's only been recent. And in fact, like a few years ago, I'm trying to even remember how many years ago this was now, maybe three. My cousin challenged me to write a song about, because I've been writing a bunch of superhero related songs. Mm-hmm. He challenged me to write one based on Dead Man. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be kind of cool. Uh, that'll give me uh, like an, an excuse to buy a bunch of Dead Man comics. So I, I ended up buying like all his trades. And reading my way all the way through, you know, all of those and, and really enjoying them, which led me then to pick up the Ostrander Mandrake Spectre stories. Uh, and then that kind of I loved those. So that that really got me hooked in. Uh, then I started reading um, Swamp Thing, Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, and uh, recently just picked up uh, Phantom Stranger as well. So like traditional horror comics, I don't really have all that many of. I've got a few from a, a really cool guy who had a, an awesome collection at a comic show I did a couple of years ago, but I, I still haven't like a Vampirella and stuff like that. So, but I haven't gotten I haven't gone back and read those yet, but I've really been loving uh, all those, you know, Swamp Thing. And oh, and the demon is a character I've, I've really been kind of getting into, too. It surprised me because I my love for the genre, at least in, in comics, isn't something I ever really anticipated. Um, oh, and Hellboy comics. I've just been diving into Hellboy, too, which I love. Nice. Um, so it's it's sort of a newer uh, fascination and a newer realization uh, how much I like this genre. I don't know if I'll ever really get into horror movies. I guess it just depends on the intent of the horror. Some some is, you know, science fiction or the supernatural and kind of creepy that way. And, and some of it is, is just, I don't know, the, the gore and mutilation stuff, which I don't really get into at all. I'm, depends on the type of violence. I'm actually the same way. There's plenty of horror that I just, I stay well away from, like the more recent sort of like splatter porn genre, the torture porn. Like, yeah. I don't, I don't I, get into those. I have zero interest. Though. Even, even some of like the classic, like... Nightmare on Elm Street, Halloween, uh, Friday the 13th movie. I haven't seen uh, – okay, I've seen a lot of those, but not all of them. And uh, certainly there's a lot of classic horror movies that I haven't seen just because of the way my tastes kind of run. But uh, no, yeah, I, I'm, I'm there with you. There's only one I think that I can think of that's a modern movie, and it's, it's also a, like a horror comedy which is, and I saw it on Netflix, it was Tucker, I think Tucker and Dale versus Evil. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really funny. I mean, it's completely not a genre, I, you know, that I really would ever get into because it is, you know, dismemberment and, you know, mm-hmm. people getting, you know, gored by things. But uh, <laughs> Done with a slightly actually, comedic touch, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's actually pretty funny. So yeah. um, that, that I like. But, yeah, I think it, a lot of it depends on, you know, the intent behind it and kind of the spirit behind it. Is it to tell a good ghost story or you know some of them some of them are really dark in in kind of a depressing to the spirit kind of way so i try to be you know careful about what i pick up well we'll try to apply some of those questions to the story that we're covering and like i said at the top folks luke is here to help me discuss the story no strings attached it originally appeared in house of mystery issue 191 that issue had a march slash april 1971 cover date but according to mike's amazing world of comics it would have been on sale around mid-january 1971 neil adams drew the cover and joe orlando edited the issue comprised of three stories 
the last story in the bunch is called The Night Prowler, and you'll probably hear me and a guest talk about that one next Christmas. For our purposes, though, Luke and I are covering the first story in the issue, which was reprinted in Showcase Presents The House of Mystery Volume 1, as well as DC Blue Ribbon Digest Issue 24, which collected stories from House of Mystery, House of Secrets, and The Witching Hour. Right now, we're going to take a short promo break, but when we return, Luke and I will tell you all about No Strings Attached. Don't go away. come in all shapes and sizes coming soon from the fire and water podcast network it's digest cast a new show dedicated to our beloved pocket-sized treasures from that bygone era of the 70s and 80s hosted by the fire and water podcast team of robin shag and we'll be joined from time to time by special guests it's digest cast because big things come in small packages coming soon to the fire and water podcast network In Pottersville, there's an old house up on the hill, and in that house lives Gregory Miller, known to the people of Pottersville as Gramps. Most people think Gramps' house is an ugly old relic, a blight on the picturesque landscape, but the children make regular visits to the house, for Gramps is a gentle tinkerer known for fixing their toys as well as their problems. Take little Dick and Jill, for example, who knock on Gramps' door one morning to retrieve Jill's doll. Gramps picks up the Susie doll from his workstation, covered in toys and marionettes, and returns her to Jill better than ever. The girl plants a kiss on Gramps' cheek and asks how she can ever repay him. You just did, Gramps says with an easy smile. He then asks Dick and Jill to remind all of their friends to come back to the house that afternoon to see Gramps' latest puppet show. The children of Pottersville, however, are not the only ones to visit Gramps' house that afternoon. The marionette show is interrupted by a heavy knocking at the door. Gramps goes to the door and meets Mr. Lucas Stone, a severe-looking man in a trench coat and fedora, who arrived in Pottersville that morning by train. Mr. Stone offers to buy Gramps' house for the ridiculous sum of $25,000. Ridiculous because, as Gramps notes, it's not worth $2,500. Why would anyone offer so much? Mr. Stone says he's a collector of sorts and wishes to collect the house. He repeats his offer of twenty-five grand, saying the deal comes with no strings attached. But there are strings, Gramps insists, heart strings, the kind that make the house too valuable to sell. The house means too much to Gramps because his role means so much to the kids. He refuses to sell, but that answer is unacceptable to Mr. Stone, who returns a few days later. Gramps reiterates that he has no interest in selling, but Stone is no longer interested in buying because he's already done it. Stone went to the bank and bought up the mortgage on the house. He tells Gramps he has one day to either pay the balance owed on the mortgage or he'll be evicted. Gramps can't afford to pay and breaks down in despair, but the children promise they won't let anything happen to him. The next day, Stone returns with the local police and a warrant to arrest Gramps for trespassing. The town children form a wall of protest between the cops and their friend, but Gramps tells them to stand down and leaves peacefully with the cops. For days, he sits alone in a jail cell. His one hope was that he would not be forgotten by the children, but he receives no letters, no word from the kids that they even remember him. Of course, this is all because Lucas Stone bribed the officer in the mailroom to withhold Gramps' letters from the children. He wanted to break Gramps' spirit, and in that he succeeds. 
One night, under the light of the full moon, little Dick and Jill sneak out of their house and go to the jail. They toss the Susie doll through the barred windows of Gramps' cell to keep him company, but their effort is too late. Gramps lies dead in his cell, the victim of a broken heart. News of Gramps' death spreads through Pottersville, with some people mourning his passing, but Lucas Stone only laughs at his good fortune. With Gramps dead, Stone's claim on the house is uncontested. He bought the house because he knows a superhighway is being developed nearby that will run right through the property, and Stone stands to gain even more money than he offered to buy the house. He celebrates with a drink and decides he needs to get rid of all of the toys and puppets in the house. They're kind of creeping him out. That night, all the children of Pottersville toss and turn in bed, their restless minds thinking only of their hatred for the nasty Mr. Stone who took Gramps away from them. Across town, the anger and the sadness of the kids becomes one powerful but silent chant, unheard by anyone living at least. While Lucas Stone celebrates in the old house, he fails to notice a wooden soldier on Gramps' workbench wake up. All of the toys and puppets in the house come alive and move silently through the house until they surround Mr. Stone, and the silence of the night is broken by one horrible scream. Lucas Stone was never seen again, at least not by the authorities who searched the house. With no one else to claim it, the old place was converted to a recreation center for the town's children, who continued to play and perform puppet shows as Gramps would have wanted. No one ever noticed the severe-looking marionette with the trench coat and fedora. If they looked closer, they would have seen the last of Lucas Stone with strings attached. No Strings Attached is written by Len Wein, illustrated by Bill Drought, and edited by Joe Orlando. Okay, Luke, what did you think of this story? I absolutely love it. Where can you get a story so good with a bunch of murderous children <laughs> and puppets? Ah, uh, right on. I mean, yeah, exactly. Like, why are there more of these? These kids, they're amazing to me. Their collective hatred destroys a man. <laughs> <laughs> but it's righteous. It's righteous hatred. Oh, it's, he deserved... oh, it's totally righteous. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I love this story for all the reasons. I mean, first you got, like, my officially on paper, my name in the books is Lucas. So, <laughs> so we've got a vile Lucas. <laughs> whose last name is Stone. He's got a heart of stone. And then you've got these, you know, it's it's puppets. I love puppets. And if anybody's listening and they don't know anything about me, I'm a big, big fan of puppets. Uh, I was a puppeteer. I did a lot of, a lot with puppetry. It's been years since I've done it. But I, I love the art form. And actually was pursuing that as, as a, career, <laughs> a career option when I was in college. I wanted to be a Muppeteer. I think common sense got the got the better of me at a certain point. But yeah, so anytime you've got like puppets on a murdering spree, that's uh, pretty cool. Well, like I said, I mean, when I wanted you to be on the show, I was like, okay, there are a couple stories, but I think I think Luke would really get a kick out of this one. <laughs> And I, I mean, I knew like your, your affinity with like making and designing toys and everything. And you as a yep. creator in general, I thought you would really like key into this Gramps character and the love that he has for this and, and the passion and to see it manifest into this physical form where they, they get revenge. I was like, what else could a creator ever want? But to see his work come to life and kill a bad guy, I was like, yeah, oh, Luke would love this I'm story. I'm still hoping, I'm still hoping for that out of some of the stuff that we <laughs> make at the office actually yeah that's a you bring up a good point i was thinking about that when i was reading it because i work at a company that designs toys 
traditionally in the past we've done Happy Meal toys, and we're currently starting to get into to our own toy lines and stuff like that. So uh, yeah, so I I really related uh, with poor old Gramps in this and his uh, his creativity. So maybe one day, you know, maybe one day we'll make something that will wake up at night and kill a bunch of people. <laughs> Here's hoping, crossing my fingers. Yeah. What did you think of the art in the story? The artist was Bill Drought, who is not a big name. I mean, he, he started working in the comics in the 40s until the 80s, but never, I don't think, on any big name stuff. Uh, he did a lot of genre tales, romance stuff, horror stuff, uh-huh. Western war stories. But what did you think of the art in the story? I actually thought the art was phenomenal in this. I really liked the line work that Bill uses throughout. So much so that when I got done, I started looking up Bill Drought, you know, online, and I wasn't able to find a whole lot, to my surprise. And and some of the stuff that I was finding, I I was feeling like maybe it was either mislabeled or whatever, because it didn't feel like it had the same elegance that I I feel like I'm seeing in, in this story, but... He's got great thicks and thins with his ink work, and uh, the characters are distinct, and he does a really great job conveying emotion Mm -hmm. throughout this. Um, Yeah, so I I was really impressed by it. And and the other funny thing about it, too, was, so I looked him up, and I, I wasn't really able to find a whole lot about him. And then over the weekend, I was at the Half Price Bookstore, the most dangerous store in the planet. (laughs) And uh, I found the first showcase edition of Phantom Stranger there. And I saw his name right on the cover. I thought, oh, well, that's funny. You know, I'd never heard of him before. And then I read this story and I really liked it. And and there he was popping up again. So, yeah, I think it's phenomenal. What what do you think about it? I love it. And especially like some of the detail that he puts into the panels. I mean, the first story page, it sort of begins on page three. And that's one of the things that I didn't include in my synopsis is there is a framing narrative with Kane, the caretaker of the House of Mystery. That's actually in the first two pages of the story proper. But I cut that out because it really didn't enhance the story. Um, So the story kind of begins on page three. We get a shot of Gramps' old house, and then like uh, a two-thirds to three-quarters like page like splash, but it includes the title of Gramps at his workstation. There is so much in this panel, yeah. so many like marionette feet and puppeteering, like all the workbench. Like this looks like he might have been like lo- like drawing from something that he saw. Like this might have been like a, a real place that he knew and breathed in and and was able to draw from life. Just the amount of detail in that. And then in other panels, you know, like the number of like of of children that he just kind of like crowds into a panel and everything. And just it's yeah. almost it's almost like George Perez level of detail and how much he can cram into a panel without making it feel like it's crammed or crowded. Um, yeah, the layouts are spectacular. Yeah, yeah, it is. And and the expressiveness on characters' faces like Stone, like Gramps, um, mm-hmm. and just like, you know, like the, the last pages when the toys are coming to life so so sinister, so menacing, and it's, oh, it, it's wonderful. Yeah, I I didn't know the name that well until I read this, and I've, I've certainly, I've seen some of his other horror stuff, and it's, I think this was really, really impressive. Yeah, this, like, I, I completely agree with you on this opening yeah. panel with him in his workshop. It is an amazing composition. He has packed a lot into it, too, but... It's really elegant the way he's done it. The story by Len Wein, this was actually really early in his career. This was, 
I think two months before his story swamp thing that was in House of Secrets ninety two. This oh, was okay. a couple of months before that. So this was this was still really early in his career. But these two guys just, they knocked it out of the park. Like and I mentioned where this was reprinted. Uh, it's it's reprinted in the last issue of DC's Blue Ribbon Digest specials, which okay. Rob and Shag from the Fire and Water Network are going to be starting their Digest cast soon. So eventually, right, I think we'll they'll get this again. <laughs> but this one is the first story reprinted in that digest. Uh, so I think everybody oh, cool. kind of knew that this was a special story. This was something really cool that they wanted to showcase. So do you think the concept of toys or puppets, you know, coming to life, everybody finds marionettes or, mm-hmm. or dummy type puppets pretty, pretty creepy. I think that's a universal thing. Uh, but at this point, was that kind of a standard trope, do you think, in horror? I, that they would come to life and kill people at night, stuff like that. I mean, I don't know. I'm, I mean, I'm familiar with it more of something from like the 80s and 90s. Certainly, a movie like Child's Play really brought it to the yeah. fore. I mean, Stephen Wasn't King, there, like Puppet Master, yeah, yeah, like that and, too. And and Stephen King has written stories about toys that come to life and terrorize people. It, it is kind of a trope. We've seen it, but I mean, this was 1971, and right. I don't know how if this was something that was popular before then, or if this was in the zeitgeist or if they were really tapping into something that was kind of primal and, and people kind of sensed but had never really expressed before. I, yeah. I really have no idea. I'd be interested in knowing that because I was telling uh, my boss about this podcast and was describing this story to him. And before I could get to the big, you know, spoiler that the toys come to life, he's like, let me guess. The toys come to life. And I'm like, oh, well, yeah, of course they do. But, you know, maybe back in this day, this was still something kind of that hadn't been super pioneered in, as a horror concept. Yeah, it'd be interesting to know. It is kind of funny that this did become a trope, and it's is it's kind of it's just interesting that it feels like yeah. I mean, like when I got to this, when I got to this story, and of course I'm I'm reading this uh, forty years after it was originally published, and I'm like, yeah, of course I I knew where it was going when I got to like the first page. I was like, right. okay, I know where the story is going to go, but there's something about it like. Is is there something about toys and the act of play that we can imagine? And I think it's something that goes back to our childhood. When we are playing with toys, with dolls, with action figures or puppets or something, we give life to them, at least in our imaginations. Right. We, we sort of give them this personality and this – we close our eyes and picture that they are doing these actions on their own without our benefit. So is it so hard to picture that evolving to the next step? that they could actually take on that life without our involvement. Right, and then, like a toy story. Exactly. And, you know, that kind of story. Exactly. Yeah. And then take that to the next step. You could have the playful, cheery, benevolent toys of a movie like Toy Story. Or? What if you break your toys? What if you tie them to bottle rockets and explode them for joy? <laughs> um, what right. If, Be yeah. nice to your toys, Sid. Yeah. What if you burn them with magnifying glasses in the summer? It's like, uh, if, if we give them yeah. life when we're not looking... Are they going to want some sort of retribution? Okay, now we've got a horror story. Toy, nurture versus nature. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's really interesting. So I'm thinking about poor, well, not poor, I guess, uh, the wicked, wicked Lucas Stone. (laughs) Your namesake. What a jerk. (laughs) Yes, my namesake. What a jerk, first of all. But do uh, do you think he's dead or do you think he's trapped inside the marionette? That is a good question. Um, I think it's more horrific to think his mind is active and alive and he's trapped inside that marionette doll forever. I think that is definitely more horrific, yes. I think that would be the greater punishment 
to be a sort of like eternally aware of this, but have I mean no animation of your own. He's he's on strings. He he has he cannot control his life. He's subject to somebody pulling and manipulating his movements. So yeah, to have that sort of waking paralysis. Oh god, yeah, it's it's horrible to imagine. I, he totally deserves it though. Sure. I mean because not. I mean, this one thing to kick a guy out of his house. Hey, I want your house. Uh, no, you can't have it. Yes, I, I can. I just bought the entire mortgage and you're gone. But it's another thing. Now he's sneaking in the guy's mailbox <laughs> yeah. and he's taking all the letters from these children. Like that's a step too far in vindictiveness, I think. Right. That's but- no longer just, you know, capitalist greed is good. Like I, I want your house to sell it back and make money. Now you're intentionally hurting this old man. And that was the only point in the story where I was like, boy, Lucas, you have gone too far. You've gone too far, buddy. You have shamed your name. Yeah, you shamed the name. So, yeah, I thought that was kind of funny. I mean, I got to that point in the story. I thought, okay, there's being wicked and wanting the house. And then there's like stealing children's letters from an old man. Boy, oh boy, did he have it coming. But now it does bring up another question. I mean, the story leads us to believe that it's the collective subconscious of these children. Are they complicit? I mean, did, did, did they kill? Did they bring these dolls to life to exact their I think vengeance? we're led to believe that, right? Yeah. I mean, it's they, yeah. they go to sleep ta- thinking of dreaming about how much they hate him. And all of that psychic energy, that those negative vibes reanimate these dolls and these marionettes and they, they go on a killing spree. Well, they kill one person that's not necessarily a spree, but they wake up and kill the first thing they the first person they see. Well, um, they know he was the guy. I right. Mean, they so, have to. Yeah. They were made by this genteel, kindly old fellow. So if they wake up and they see heartless Lucas Stone like playing with a stack of $100 bills or whatever he's doing at the table there, they're going to kill that guy. But yeah, it is. It's funny. The, the kids, uh, the kids bring the toys to life. It's their hatred. So yeah, they're complicit completely. Now just imagine like being like their bus driver. You better not tick them off. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Huh? I kind of want to stay away from Pottersville. I don't know <laughs> what the what's going on with these guys. If a teacher gives them enough detentions, are they just going to like go to sleep, of, like dreaming about how much they're mad at their math teacher? I certainly hope not, for the sake of every math teacher. <laughs> it also, uh, it, yeah. I mean, it also it involves something else that is common of these types of stories, which is just a a magic that is inherent in children. Because yeah. grown-ups, adults, would not have gone to sleep thinking, like, they could not have achieved this. This is something that is, we, we buy into children have this power because they have this kind of love and affection for a man and and they can see a sort of black and white kind of world where, you know, he, he, he this was an evil act and I think... Yeah, kids have an intuitiveness yeah. to that. They're connected to it. They can... As we grow older, I think we desensitize ourselves to these things. You, you can start to look at uh, at Lucas Stone and, and think, well, no, he had a reason. He wanted the house. He wanted to get the collection. But, you know, to kids, yeah, they, they see things purely, I mm-hmm. think. There's a purity to it. Even even if the emotion that is, that's coming across so purely is rage and hatred and anger. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So how, what do you think happened to Lucas Stone? Because, I mean, we've been saying, like, he got killed, but he didn't 
totally get killed. How do you think they... This is just more magic. Like, did the toys drag him off? Because he's not like a human-sized marionette. He's a toy-sized marionette. Right. So, yeah, I mean, that that is a little bit vague. I mean, you could ask, I mean, did they just... Did they just carve something that looks like him? And then, I mean, that really wouldn't accomplish anything unless, like you said, it's somehow... Like it's the they trap like his, his, his spirit, trap, his it, spirit or his soul or his mind, his consciousness at least is trapped. So do you think his body's buried in the back? And, Could be. Or do you think they just used more horror magic and turned him into the tiny thing? What do you think? I think the simplest explanation is just they used some sort of horror magic and just his, his body was shrunk down and like the flesh and bone became plastic or wood uh, and it was just converted into this type of... Yeah, this type of thing. Creepy. Yeah. I don't want to go that way. Yeah, the the physical process, the the basic <laughs> mechanics of it. I don't know. There there's a lot of ways that you could explain it. Yeah. I think I would I was truly crestfallen when Gramps died. When I got to that panel, I I don't think I was expecting that. I was like, "Oh, he straight up died from sadness in there. That's tragic." But that's that's one of the steps that you need. I mean, that's that's I guess. that's part of the structure of the story. You need a you need a crime that is beyond the pale in order to take some kind of vengeance that is beyond the natural. Yeah. So. Okay. Anyway, that's all I got. Did you have any other notes for the story? Ultimately, I really liked it. I think the artwork was surprisingly beautiful to me. Uh, the depictions of the toys, the workshop, the expressions that that Gramps uh, had. Uh, and the children even had uh, it was really poetically done i thought um so yeah and and i love that it was puppets i love that it was toys it's just kind of your your classic wicked guy comes in and, and takes over sorts of sort of story so th- there was a lot to enjoy with it i think you know for for being just 11 pages it, it really packed a, a great punch I, I, I enjoyed it quite a bit yeah me too well, Luke, thank you very much for being on this episode of Midnight the Podcasting Hour. Where can people find you online, or what other projects or things would you like to promote to uh, to help sell yourself? Sure. Uh, well, I am under the moniker Dob Creative. That's D A A B Creative. Just about everywhere. I'm on Twitter as Dob Creative. Uh, I have a Facebook page for Dob Creative. I do art and music and a little bit of writing here and there. Not not much writing shows up online, but yeah, I'm a, I'm a singer, songwriter, visual artist. I do a lot of comic art, and those things kind of will, will show up through my Twitter feed and through my Facebook page. Uh, and I currently have a, a Patreon page as well, too, to uh, to support a lot of the comic book um, fan art that I've been doing and the prints, and occasionally a song will show up there, too. So that's, yeah, that's Patreon, Luke Dobb, not Dobb Creative. So yeah, kind of all all over the web. If you just search Luke Dobb or you search Dobb Creative, you'll you'll see my stuff, and it should link you back to one of the one of the places where I put my my artwork online. Fantastic! One more time, thank you very much for being my guest. Uh, it was great to talk to you again. This was great. Yeah, it's good to talk to you too. Yeah, and listeners, don't go away because I'm going to take a short little break, and then when I come back, I'll get your listener feedback and then an announcement about the future of this podcast. Don't go away. When you talk about comics, does it sound something like this? Look, you can't put the Superman number 77s with the 200s. They haven't even discovered red kryptonite yet. And you, uh, you can't put the number 98s with the 300s. Lori the Mars hasn't even been introduced. Or maybe it sounds a little more like this. You think Mighty Mouse could beat up Superman? What are you, cracked? Why not? 
I saw the other day he was carrying five elephants in one hand. Boy, you don't know nothing. Mighty Mouse is a cartoon. Superman is a real guy. No way a cartoon could beat up a real guy. Yeah, maybe you're right. It would be a good fight, though. Hello, I am the constantly caffeinated Clinton Robison, and my comics discussions can go to both extremes, but generally fall somewhere in between. On the Coffee and Comics podcast, I will review comic stories and other comics-related topics that can be enjoyed over a cup of coffee. So pour the coffee, or other beverage of choice, and join me on the Coffee and Comics podcast, available on iTunes and coffeeandcomicspodcast.blogspot.com. Since last episode, we received a new iTunes review from Clinton Robison of the Coffee and Comics blog, and now the Coffee and Comics podcast. Clinton titled his review a true podcast classic with five stars, which is awesome. His review says, It'll thrill you, it'll chill you. This podcast will remind you of reading spooky adventure and horror stories under the covers after bedtime. PJ Frightful proves to be the boundary-pushing horror host that Ryan Daly needed. Spooky and entertaining, even if you don't know all these old books. A can't-miss classic here. Well, thank you very much, Clinton. Check out his blog, check out his podcast. Very, very good stuff. On the last episode, Howard Simpson and I talked about the Spectre story in Adventure Comics 431. That episode received new Twitter favorites and retweets from Ange, Between the Pages, Brian Jones, Cashflag, a.k.a. Al, Chuck Rodriguez, Codeman, at Beware the Matman, Coffee and Comics, Comic Book Insurance, Comic Reflections, Comics Tweets, Crazed Wingnut, Dave Gould, DS and RS, Dylan Ferrer, Glenn Walker, Film and Water Podcast, It's Plastic Man, Jeremy Gunter, Jim Bow, Keith G. Baker, Cord Industries, KSC GSF Podcast, Laurel at Mountain Flower One, Longbox Crusade, Nathaniel Wayne, Relatively Geeky, Rolled Spine Podcast, The Running Fox, Sakura Fields, Silver and Gold, Slangwood Scott, Treasury Comics, and Willie Yarbrough. New Facebook likes and shares came from Abadaba, Al Sedano, Billy Lacasse, Chris Franklin, Clinton Robison, Coffee and Comics, David Foster, Edo Bosnar, H. Daniel Rybolt, Jeremy Gunter, Kalal Kamandi, Kelly Nelson, Kyle Benning, The Longbox Crusade, Martin Gray, Matthew Parmenter, Mike Gillis, Pat Sampson, Rob Kelly, Scott Gage, Scott Rowland, Sean Emmons, Shag, Siskoid, Stephen Bird, and Van Z. Back on episode 1 or episode 2 maybe, I said that I would read the comments left at the Fire and Water website, which is at fireandwaterpodcast.com. I had responded to those comments when I got to episode 6, the next random horror story. Well, here we are. But I've got kind of a big announcement to make about this podcast, so I'm not going to respond to those comments. I have read them. I appreciate them all. They were uniformly complimentary and exciting to get at the time when this podcast had just launched. It was great hearing from some of you who are really familiar with the kinds of books we've been covering, and others for whom this dark corner of DC is a bit of a blind spot. In any event, big shout-outs to Paul Hicks, David Ace Gutierrez, Vera Wilde, Siskoid, Dr. Ange, Chris Franklin, Thomas Falvey, Bradley Null, Jeff Nettleton, Clinton Robison, Abel Mavada, MTC, Nathaniel Wayne, Jimmy McGlinchey, Martin Gray, and Diablo Frank. They all left comments on the website for the first episode, and I appreciate their words and their encouragement. Now, 
shifting gears to the future of this podcast. When this show first launched last Halloween, it was noted by more than one person how ambitious the scope was. Tackling so many different series over an extended time, was I being selfish and hogging all of these wonderful characters and comics? Would I even be able to maintain focus, or would I burn out on this show? Well, I have no idea if the workload would have ended up proving too much for me under, shall we say, optimal podcasting circumstances. But the fact of the matter is, this show is going to change because my circumstances have changed. Because a little while ago, I found out I'm going to be a dad. Yes, that is right. My wife, Angela, is carrying her own little demon within. And I am excited. This is great. We've been trying for some time. Didn't know when it was going to happen, but it's happening. And now the little brood is scheduled to hatch this summer. From everything the Irredeemable Shag has told me, being a parent does not change your life at all. Shag swears to me that fatherhood will have zero impact on my schedule. Everything will be status quo normal after the baby's born. But I think... I just have a feeling that Shag might be lying to me. So that means things will be changing, and the time I usually spend on podcasting will feel the pinch. I already told Angela that my number one priority was Batman Nightcast with Chris. Number two is her and the baby, and then all the other crap. That means the release schedule for Midnight the Podcasting Hour might become very irregular after the summer. I don't want to mess around with my listeners by trying to do multiple indexing shows within the same podcast when I have no idea when I'll be able to record the next one, and I sure as hell don't want to put my semi-permanent co-hosts through that either. But I love so much of the material I want to cover on this show. I don't want to abandon this thing in its infancy, so instead I'm going to try and accelerate my coverage of some of these series to the point where I can feel like I covered what I want to cover and bid them adieu by the summer. How is that going to look? Well, for one thing, this show is not going to have five ongoing features anymore. I looked at the lineup and I had to condense some things. And sadly, the easiest thing to drop was the Dead Man feature. So, going forward, I will not be covering the adventures of Dead Man with Doug Zavisha. I said this was the easiest feature to drop. That's because there are good, appropriate stop points in the other series that I've been covering. Whereas Dead Man's Saga goes on for a while, and it's less thematically horror-based than some of the others. I feel like covering his first appearance was a good one-off episode for the show. All of that said, however, this was not an easy decision to make because I love recording with Doug. I told him the situation and why I thought Deadman had to go, and Doug, being a parent himself, was extremely gracious and understanding. And I told him that we are not done podcasting together. I don't know what our next collaboration will be or when it will be, but someday we'll work together again. Anyway, that is one of the ways I'm condensing this podcast. The other way is I'm going to try and fold the Spectre feature into the same slot as the random horror selection, like this episode's story with Luke Dobb. This will make it so every third episode of this podcast, you'll either get one of the Fleischer Aparo Spectre stories from Adventure Comics, or a random horror story like we got this time. Which leaves the last two features, Night Force and Swamp Thing. This is where the acceleration comes in. Paul Hicks and I already covered the Night Force preview. That leaves just 14 issues of the regular series to cover, which we were already planning to do at roughly two issues per episode. 
Well, now we're doubling up on that, and Paul and I are going to try and get through the Night Force series in just four episodes. If scheduling gets tough, we may need to rope in Dr. Ange for one of them, but I think we can get that done by the summer. Then there's the Swamp Thing feature with Ben Avery, which I am happy to say returns next episode. The plan right now is to cover two issues of the original run every time we do a Swamp Thing feature. This means after just five more episodes of the Swamp Thing feature, we'll be able to cover the first ten issues, which are all of the issues that Bernie Wrightson worked on. And then, if we had time to do one more episode after that, we could cover issues 11 through 13, and that would wrap up Len Wein's run on the series. Either one of those places I think would be a good place to stop if I need to stop, if taking care of my little monster made it difficult to coordinate and produce this show on a regular, sensible basis. At least I would have that original Ween rights and era of Swamp Thing taken care of. I would be more than happy with that. Where this show goes from there, I have no idea. I can't imagine what my life will be like six months from now, so I can't tell you what to expect from the show after that. But, like I said, I am excited for what's in my future, and I am always excited for what's going to be covered on this show. However and whenever I get to it, I am proud of this show, and I will always make it something special for you. Whatever is being covered. Anyway, that's what's going on. God, I've got so many questions about pregnancy and fatherhood, and I just want... That awful bell. Okay, I'll do it another time. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Feedback for the show can be left at fireandwaterpodcast.com or the Facebook page for Midnight, the podcasting hour. You can find Ryan on Twitter at RyanDaily01 or send him an email at rdailypodcast at gmail.com. Midnight, the podcasting hour, is not affiliated with DC Comics and the views expressed belong solely to the speaker. Music for this podcast is produced by Neil Daly. Any additional music, audio clips, or quoted text is used for entertainment purposes and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, have a good midnight.